Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. Hello, I'm Peter. Where are you from originally? Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auten. And I'm Chad Gross. And we're looking forward to today's interview with philosopher Peter S. Williams. Peter S. Williams is based in Southampton, England. He's a Christian philosopher and apologist, and he is the assistant professor in communication and worldviews at NLA University College at Gimlekelen, Christiansund, Norway. He speaks internationally on behalf of the truth, goodness, and beauty of following Jesus. He's also a trustee of the Christian Evidence Society, a Montgomery Trust lecturer, and both a mentor and traveling speaker for the European Leadership Forum. Now, he's got a number of books, which we will link in the show notes, but today we're going to be talking a bit about his book that he's edited with many contributors called An Informed Cosmos, Essays on Intelligent Design Theory. Really interesting book, a lot of great contributions there. Chad, do you have any thoughts on the book and uh, what we're expecting for today? Yeah, well, as you know, Brian, if... if uh if there was a stranded on a desert island author that one had to pick and you could only take their work with you, uh, Peter S. Williams's work is probably what I would take with me. I thought the book was absolutely outstanding. I thought it was a great kind of survey of the current interaction between ID and evolution, particularly neo-Darwinism. And I was just really impressed with how many topics he was able to interact with and the amount of scholars. And of course, as I text you, the footnotes alone are just phenomenal and worth the price of the book. But of course, the content's excellent as well. Yeah, I highly enjoyed it and recommend it. And looking forward to speaking to Peter. Let's go to the interview. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Well, Peter S. Williams, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. It's a delight. Well, first off, uh, tell us a little bit about this book, An Informed Cosmos. Um, what do you mean by informed and uh, what have we got here? <laughs> well, it's really a, a book uh, on the theme of intelligent design theory. The subtitle of the book is Essays on Intelligent Design Theory. And it's a, one of a, a series of books that I've been doing over the last few years that are collections of essays on different themed topics where I sort of uh, spruce up and republish things that I've published in various venues together with a substantial sort of introductory preface, kind of chapter uh, length preface, get, get someone uh, to write a foreword for me, stick them between some covers and I've, I've uh, been able to produce a, a book a year for a few years by <laughs> dint of this, this uh, sneaky process of uh, drawing on material that I've already published uh, and theming them. But this, this one is on intelligent design theory and uh, the preface kind of lays out my uh, kind of uh, autobiographical journey with that topic mm -hmm. going from, although I was uh, raised in a Christian home by to science teacher parents, uh, a home that was very comfortable with, you know, uh, geology and the, the old age of the universe and of the earth and evolutionary theory. And when I went off to university, I would have considered myself you know, a, a thought through and informed theistic evolutionist. Uh, and it was as I studied in philosophy of science, when I was doing my philosophical studies at various universities. I got interested in philosophy of science as one of the areas that 
piqued my interest. And I kind of got into the debate about discussing how you define science and how to do science. What is science? What kind of explanations can count as being scientific and so on? And that drew to my attention some of the writings of folks in the ID movement, folks like Stephen Meyer, for example. And I, I came to the conclusion that the ID folks had got their philosophy of science correct. And that kind of opened me up to the further question of, well, did they have anything else <laughs> that they were saying mm. uh, correct uh, as well? So I kind of came in from this rather strange angle of the philosophy of science, which I think is really the kind of the tertiary issue in the discussion, uh, as it were. Uh, but that's, that's what brought me into this whole area. Uh, and then over the years, I've written quite a few essays. I published on the Access Research Network website, which was a, an a early active ID a website and so on. And uh, I've kind of drawn on what I think are um, the, the, the cream of the crop of my ID publishing past and present in this book here as well. I just want to say, uh, you, you mentioned there that, uh, oh, this is pre-published work and things. And, uh, you know, I threw it in, in between a couple of book covers. I would want the reader to, like, ignore that because <laughs> it gives the impression <laughs> that, oh, this is, well, just try to get a book out. This is absolutely not the case. Uh, I mean, I got through your preface and then, you know, I was listening to it text-to-speech in, in my headphones. And, and I was like, oh, well, that was uh, that was the preface? Wow. And I looked at it, it was like 25% through the book. And I'm like, that was a monster. Like, this was really great content. And I haven't even actually started the <laughs> book itself or the essays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is great material. It may have been stuff that you, you know, didn't write specifically for the book. You had it. But uh, as you say, if it's the cream of the crop that you've put together, I think that's a more reasonable, like, description of the book for maybe potential readers mm -hmm. who are looking into intelligent design. Yeah, Brian. And I would want to say, too, that, you know, Peter, I said I told Brian before the podcast started that if if there was a um, desert island author, you know, that you were going to be stuck on a desert island, you could only take their work with you. I, I think your stuff would probably be mine. That'd probably be my pick um, just as a compliment. Uh, every time I read one one of your books, it's just so engaging. Absolutely love your writing style and the interaction that you have with such a vast variety array of um, authors. But the thing too about the, this book is that I thought it was the best interaction I've ever seen about assessing intelligent design. And uh, I thought it was very current and I thought it cleared up a lot of misunderstandings. And so I would want to echo what Brian is saying and, and don't see this as, oh, well, you know, I don't want to read these old published <laughs> essays. I mean, this is yeah. very current. This is very engaging. Yeah. Um, so, say, so just um, well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. uh, particularly American listeners should put my opening comments in the context of, of typical in English self-deprecating humour. <laughs> yes. um, uh, maybe maybe we missed that, Brian. <laughs> so, Just like Tolkien, yeah. man. <laughs> As you say, there's a, a very substantial new uh, preface together with a foreword written by Stephen Mayer uh, himself. Yeah. And then the, the essays are um, an essay that I had published in Philosophia Christi Philosophy Journal, uh, which is a peer-reviewed paper, and then uh, additional papers that I have interacting with the thinking of uh, Thomas Nagel in one paper and the discussion about philosophy science, particularly with Michael Roos and uh, Philip Johnson. And then I have a paper that's the the end of a substantial debate that I had with a theistic evolutionist called Dennis Alexander, 
but you can you can understand the whole debate from reading that that end of that debate. Yes, and then a. Uh, uh, some short little pieces, including a piece I wrote um, recently on a, a recent discussion between Richard Dawkins, the British zoologist, and Francis Collins, who um, the geneticist from from America, who's a theistic evolutionist. So the book, both as you say, you know, interacts with the kind of Darwinian philosophically Darwinian side of the discussion, but also with the theistic evolutionist side. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, that's close to my heart because that's where I came from. And when you when you say sort of clearing up sort of mistaken ideas, well, that, that, those those are the, the you know ideas that that I had that I had to kind of journey journey through, seeing what what the problems with those ideas were to arrive at becoming convinced of ID myself. Uh, and as a philosopher, what I'm particularly interested in and kind of bringing to the discussion is is clarity about concepts. Clarity about argumentation, uh, and so um, sort of um, pointing out fallacies in people's understanding of definitions or use of argumentation on both sides of the of the bookend of the of the debate, as it were. There is uh, something that I think the book particularly kind of brings to the table, as it were. Yeah. I agree. So one one thing I wanted to just start with, because I think that when you're reading about this discussion, uh, regardless of uh, what side it's from, sometimes there is not always clarity on what intelligent design actually is and um, what it is not. And so before we start diving into more specific questions and themes, mm-hmm. I thought it would be helpful for our listeners to just have you kind of talk about what intelligent design is. I know in the book you talk about, you know, there's there's a difference between ideas design detection versus intelligent design theory. And so I just thought it'd be helpful to kind of unpack that from the onset for our listeners. Yes, that's right. So you can look at ideas as a very kind of broad scientific area that's looking at how do we detect uh, evidence of design? How do we make warranted inferences from evidence, from data, to the conclusion that there is genuine design and the input of intelligence to uh, arrange um, reality? And then you have a specific kind of application of that general concept and discussion of, you know, can we do this? How best do we do this? You can apply that in all sorts of different, you know, scientific fields. So you could apply that within like forensic science, forensic engineering, in computer sciences, in um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, kind of looking for uh, signals from space that would indicate that they had an intelligent source, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Where it becomes controversial is when you apply it to something that we would kind of categorize as nature. If you apply it to, um, say, the fine-tuning of the cosmos in cosmological terms, or if you apply it to information uh, systems and information processing and so on within biological life, like the, the origin, where do you get the origin of enough information working together to have something capable of even undergoing Darwinian processes of evolution in the first place? Mm. And if you, you say, maybe there's data there that passes through the same kind of criteria that you would apply in these other scientific fields, and in those situations points to intelligence, what do you do when you have data from cosmology or from biology or from genetics and molecular biology and so on 
that seems to pass the same kind of design detection criteria and thus points to intelligence. Hmm. Right? What I think you have to do is separate off the discussion, the kind of philosophical discussion about, well, what's the best explanation of that intelligence that you've inferred? You know, what is intelligence? What kind of intelligence would that be in that situation? And so on. An analogy I give is is like two people may disagree philosophically about what human intelligence is. One may be a materialist who thinks that human intelligence is nothing but the operation of brain, and one may, may be a substance dualist who thinks that intelligence uh, crucially relies upon a person having a, a substantial soul, right? So they right. differ about what intelligence is, but they can both look at the same data and use the same criteria and say, yeah, X is probably the product of intelligence. Hmm. But then they have to go down the pub and have an argument about what intelligence is <laughs> or, yeah. or so on, or, or a discussion about who the intelligence would be. You know, it's, it's very difficult, different. If you see like a, a crop circle and one person says, oh, look, evidence of aliens. <laughs> right. Well, the other person doesn't say, well, you know, I'm skeptical about the existence of aliens. Therefore, that crop circle is not the product of intelligence. They probably say, therefore, that crop circle is probably the product of, of humans mm. <laughs> in that situation. And we, but we can obviously have a debate about who the best designer candidate is. And that issue becomes very prominent, obviously, when you, when you try making design inferences within things like molecular biology or the fine-tuning of the cosmos. But there is still a debate to be had there uh, where different worldviews can try and interpret that explanation and that data in terms comfortable to their own worldview. So it, it doesn't, you know, an inference to design doesn't end the discussion, but it starts a discussion. Hmm. I really like how you put that. Yeah, one of the one of the fascinating things that you really challenged me on in the book is a few themes that I think are interconnected and they also follow up well to what you said is this idea of there's this debate of should ID be considered science, mm. right? And I really like the way you approach that question in the book. Is that really ultimately the most important question? I'm trying to ask without yeah, stealing yeah, your thunder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then secondly, secondly, I, what was even more interesting to me was this idea of how do you define science and how there's actually not like a settled definition uh, and, and, and how important that is. And so can you, can you talk right. about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. As mm. I say, I, I came into this from the philosophy of science discussion, but I actually do think it, it's kind of secondary tertiary to, to, to the issue here. Mm. I would say ID uh, really, you've got two premises that lead to a conclusion. It's, it's kind of that simple premise. One is, do you think that we've got some reliable design inferring methodology, some kind of criteria that we can apply to data such that we can reliably infer design from that data. And of course, lots of people think that that's true, whether or not they agree with intelligent design theory. And that's actually something that that, that Philosophia Christie paper in the book goes into, looking at design inference through the methodology that's known as looking for specified complexity, showing that people who disagree with intelligent design theory both on the atheist side of the discussion, the sort of philosophically Darwinian side of the discussion, and the theistic evolutionist side of the discussion, are actually happy 
that looking for specified complexity is a reliable indicator of design, that this is a, uh, helps you uh, warrant an inference to design. So that's premise one, that we've got some sort of criteria that allows us to draw inferences when we have relevant data. The second premise would be that we've got some data within nature that passes through the criteria. Mm. Now, if both of those premises are true, A, we have a reliable design inferring criteria, two, we have some data that passes through that criteria, the conclusion that follows is that you know, there is something in nature that warrants an inference to design. So if you, if you get that far, well, then you can have a discussion about, well, you know, what kind of subject are we going to describe that as? What f- academic field are we going to put drawing that conclusion within? Okay. Well, yeah. in a sense, like, you know, who cares? If, if you've got a, a sound argument with, you know, two true premises or a conclusion that, that follows, right? Uh, so that that conclusion that there, yeah, there is genuine design within nature. If that's true, well, that's the most important thing here, right? Whether you call, right. Whether, whether you call the truth of that proposition philosophy or theology or history or science, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And if you really don't want to call it science, you know, my would be kind of pragmatic. Well, what are you going to do? Suddenly defund all the biology departments and send the money across campus to the, the philosophy department, the theology, to, you know, what, whatever you've decided that this, you know, ID stuff is in order to, so that we can increase our genuine understanding of how nature actually came about and works and so, and so on. Right. <laughs> Rather than just saying, oh, well, okay, that, that increases our understanding of the reality of nature. Well, that's what science is about. Science is about understanding the truth about the world, particularly through methods that pay attention to how evidence confirms or disconfirms theories about that or something like mm. this. You know? Whereas a, a lot of people you know, want to kind of smuggle into you know, how we define science some kind of limit on the kind of explanation or the kind of entities that can feature in the explanations of science. And as I argue in the book, when you, when you try and limit science in, in, in that kind of way to kind of, you end up kind of gerrymandering your conclusion in advance of looking at the evidence and you find it very difficult to, to find consistent definitions of science when you try and restrict it beyond something, you know, plain and straightforward, like the, the search for truth about reality. In, in a sense, I, w- I would argue that, you know, science used to be called natural philosophy, and, and then it kind mm. of budded off from, from the, the discipline of, of philosophy within the university to become its kind of own department. And a Christian reverend in Britain uh, 150 years ago or something, 200 years ago, coined the term science for that. Mm. <laughs> But, you know, whether you call it science, whether you call it natural philosophy, we kind of want to understand the truth about the, na- the, the physical world uh, around us, its history, how things in it came about, etc. Yeah. And I think it has practical application for conversation, too, because if I'm in a conversation and somebody wants to make the interaction all about the definition of, you know, whether or not ID is science, yeah. It, I, I felt like what I read in your book would allow me to say, well, 
It depends on what you mean by science, and that's an interesting discussion. But yeah. ultimately, let's just look at the premises and see if they're true. Yeah. And it kind of keeps the main thing the main thing, which is yeah. incredibly important yeah. because these conversations tend to get derailed yeah. so easily. Right. Yeah. Propositions can be true whether or not they're scientific. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the people who are going to disagree with that have a very hardline scientistic understanding mm. of epistemology that there are well-known critiques of that kind of hardline scientism out there, but you know, it ends up cutting its own throat basically. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Keep, keep the, the main thing, the main thing, as you say, the, the question is truth, not what academic field is this? What do we call it? How do we define that subject area? Well, okay. If, if ID ends up being true, but outside of your definition of that, of that subject area, well, I think your subject area has become a lot less interesting. Uh, you, have, <laughs> you, you have science, according to your ID excluding definition, and this is on the assumption that ID is true, right? But Are I'm going to sure? have a, a new subject that actually tells me the truth about reality that, in a way that your science doesn't allow it to get to, and I'm going to call my si subject schmience. <laughs> now, which are you which are you interested in a subject called science which uh, stops itself from getting at something that's true about reality for ideological purposes or schmience which actually tells you the truth about reality mm. <laughs> right and if you frame right. it that way it becomes like well it's a no-brainer right so really the question really the question hinges on is id true and that hinges on the, the two questions do we have a reliable method of inferring design? And is there data within the natural world that passes through that criteria? It's a great point. It seems to me that one of the biggest hurdles to try to get over is this idea coming from those who are wedded to an evolutionary point of view or a materialist point of view, is that they may argue that, hey, these ID people... Uh, they're religious people and they can't help but impose their worldview when they're looking at the data. But in my mind, that seems to be sort of tacitly admitting that they're doing the same thing because they are saying, oh, you're looking at the data. You can't help but be informed by where you want to go with it. Uh, but they're disallowing anything that's not materialist. So it seemed like they're not following the data. They're they're assuming the end point and then they're working towards it. That they would use that against the ID people seems sort of back to that self-defeating yeah, idea. Yeah. I agree. And and it's back to the philosophy of science, rather than kind of gerrymandering the, the definition. So you you've made up your mind in advance of looking at the evidence. What the ID folks argued for was saying we want a so-called open philosophy of science that specifically doesn't make up its mind about what the conclusion of the investigation is going to be before we've gone in search and of, of looking at what does the actual evidence indicate and then let the chips fall where they may. ID doesn't say, okay, we start with the assumption that there are, you know, that things are made by some kind of intelligence and then, gosh, we've arrived at the conclusion that intelligence was involved, you know. Uh, of course, that's rid ridiculous. But but equally, as you say, it's I think ridiculous to kind of say we start with the assumption that whatever explains the natural world around us, intelligence was not involved. 
oh gosh, mm. we've arrived at a conclusion that's compatible with the assumption that intelligence was... You know, the atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, basically makes this argument and, and says, you know, if you gerrymander the definition of science in that way, you stop science from being a search for the truth. Instead, you, you turn science into a search for the best theory that we can come up with for explaining the data of nature that is consistent with the assumption that naturalism is true or that no intelligence of any kind was involved in producing anything within the natural world, right? And it says, well, that's no longer just a search for the truth. <laughs> that is, you know, a search for the best that we can come up to subject to this philosophical assumption that we're just bringing to the table and that we're not, mm. we're not letting the evidence call that assumption into question. So we're not searching for the truth uh, anymore. Uh, mm. And I, I think Montan is, is, is right about that. And we, we need a philosophy of science that doesn't make us assume the answers we're going to arrive at before we've looked at the evidence. So switching gears here a little bit, you mentioned Stephen Meyer uh, writing the forward to the book, and he, he brought up a theme that I kind of wanted to hash out here a little bit. He says this, he says, at a time when leading evolutionary biologists are explicitly acknowledging a crisis in the explanatory power of evolutionary theory, many Christians and religious scientists are urging fellow believers to accept evolution as the means by which God created. And so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about kind of that uh, phenomenon that's happening right now. And, and what, what do you think's behind that? What do you think's going on? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that there is a, a growing discussion between what we could call the, the kind of standard kind of what you got taught in school, what you got taught in college textbook, neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory, and secular uh, evolutionary biologists and so on who are saying that theory doesn't hack it, doesn't explain uh, the full range of data that we now know that process obviously does some things, but mm -hmm. it doesn't cover the territory. It, you know, it explains the survival of the fittest, but not the arrival of the fittest, uh, mm -hmm. as it's sometimes uh, been put. That the origination of animal forms, body plans, and so on is actually impossible to explain on that kind of gene centric view of life because there is information in creatures outside of the information that's within the genes. Genes code for uh, making proteins, and proteins fold and then jointly do various jobs within bodies. But the, the information for you know, how to make the creature that, that those proteins are doing jobs within is not itself in the genes. Mm. Surely there's, there's you know, information outside of that and, and so on and so forth. And so there is this kind of various people putting forward other aspects of the world that they think need to be taken into account. I think it's um, some work on so-called um, natural genetic engineering, as it's being called, where the, the, the idea that when genes mutate, uh, they don't do so according to neo-Darwinism in a way that is directed at being beneficial for the for the organism it's just you know random right mm. 
But there's research showing that under certain selection pressures, creatures can vary their DNA in certain places faster under pressure to kind of find solutions for the relevant kind of problem. That there are kind of these kind of feedback systems within life that help them cope with uh, selection pressures under certain conditions and so on. And that's all very interesting. But it just kind of pushes back the question of, well, where did that that system that does that come from? Did that system that does that evolve by a neo-Darwinian process? Can that account for it or not? And so on. So there's this whole group of scholars who are saying that, that this kind of standard textbook neo-Darwinianism doesn't really do it. It's part of the picture, but it can't be the whole picture. But they're trying to fill in the whole picture, still subject to this limitation that Whatever we use to fill in the picture with, it mustn't mention genuine intelligence, genuine kind of teleology. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's that assumption that the ID folks are calling into question. So, uh, you know, uh, many of the same critiques of neo-Darwinism are shared by uh, both those those groups, the kind of third way crowd uh, in evolutionary biology and ID. But the options as to what, what resources you might appeal to to overcome the explanatory de- deficits of neo-Darwinism, that's where, you know, that along philosophical lines, <laughs> the debate uh, remains to be, to, to be, to be had as well. Hmm. And what do you make of those, as, as Meyer put it there, he said, uh, there are many Christians and religious scientists that are urging fellow believers to accept evolution as the means by which God created. Do you see that as well? And I mean, from reading your book, yes. <laughs> and uh, but then, what what do you make of that? Do you see that as yeah. a is a is problematic? That's quite down the line from my thinking about ID, as it were. Uh, okay. Again, ID would say yes. Of course, there are uh, natural processes, the result of the capacities of the the physical objects that we study in science uh, that that do things um, like the neo-Darwinian process certainly that does happen. These are the processes that the the third way folks would point to. Some of those processes clearly exist and, and do things. But ID would say that at various data points, and you know, different ID theorists may disagree about which data points maybe here would be included. But that, that there are various data points of data within the natural world that do genuinely point to design. And mm. I'm quite kind of maximalist on this. I, I kind of think that the fine-tuning of the cosmos points to design. I think there's a design inference to be made from the origin of life. I think there mm. are design inferences to be made from the, the large increases in information in life that happens around things like the explosion of body plans in the Cambrian explosion. I think you can make design inferences from you know large amounts of information you know, processing and so on in life from the irreducible complexity of certain biomolecular systems uh, within life along the lines that Michael Behe argues. I think there's a whole uh, host of different data points, if you like, that point to design being the best explanation for those data points. Hmm. Now, particularly because you've got the background of the fine-tuning of the cosmos, you kind of have, you kind of say, okay, there's there's an intelligently designed general cosmic background of laws and starting conditions. And then within that designed context, there are things that happen according to those designed laws and starting conditions, but without any additional input of information. And there are other things like, say, the origin of life 
that seem to point to an additional input of information, an additional activity of intelligence somehow getting into the into the, the system at, at that point. Okay, making that argument, I think, you know, and saying, yeah, I think it's legitimate to call that scientific argument, that's intelligent design theory. Now, what philosophical worldview do you think makes most sense of that scientific theory? Well, okay, as a Christian, I think <laughs> Christianity does, right? <laughs> surprise, sure. surprise, right? But, you know, other people with other worldviews will, of course, argue for their worldview being the best explanation of that. And I think people with a naturalistic worldview can try and do that. You know, if, like Elon Musk, you think that our entire reality is a virtual computer simulation, well, that's an intelligent design theory. It's just, mm. it's an atheistic intelligent design theory. Mm -hmm. or, or you might say, okay, yeah, there's evidence for design within the origin of life on Earth. Clearly, it was the aliens that did it. And those aliens, like, you know, Professor Dawkins says it's, it's, it's possible, you know, famous interview um, with Ben Stein, Dawkins said, you know, it's possible that life on Earth could be the product of design, but, you know, maybe it was aliens or whatever, but those aliens would themselves have to be the product of evolution. Right. So we kind of push it back a stage, or members of the, the naturalistic Raelian UFO religion, religious movement, believe that humans are the creation of intelligent aliens. And if you point out to them that that kind of pushes back the question a step, and you, but surely, you know, wouldn't those aliens contain any specified complexity, which would in turn point to design? They would say, well, yes, uh, those aliens were created by other aliens, and so on and so on, ad infinitum. And they're willing to accept the existence of an infinite regress in their worldview. Now, I think infinite regresses are problematical, and that's why I think cosmological arguments for God are good arguments for the existence of uh, a designer who does not contain specified complexity. Right. Right? So, but here, you see, we're, we're into a discussion between different metaphysical worldviews about the nature of that designing intelligence. That's a philosophical discussion downstream from the conclusion of ID. I see. And, you know, and then, of course, you know, within a, a Christian worldview, you could have different, different views of how, in coming up with a synoptic Christian worldview, best to mm. integrate the conclusion of intelligent design with your theology, with your you know, different ways in which different Christians read and interpret the scripture quite apart from how they integrate it or are influenced in that interpretation by what they think the scientific evidence points to and mm. so on and so forth so it, it's really kind of downstream from the whole from the whole discussion that makes sense and that was very helpful thank you well i'm curious peter you mentioned at the top of the interview how your story is that you were your view used to be theistic evolution that um, i can accept christianity uh, God exists, but God used evolution in some way. Um, yeah. So I wonder what are the major strands of evidence that led you to change your view on this? Because maybe some Christians who hold a theistic evolution would be like, well, you know, it's the agreed upon paradigm from quote unquote science. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so I don't have time for all of that. Fine. God used it. And uh, in a way, that's 
an intelligent design in the sense that he had to sort of front load these systems to come about. So maybe it's not random on a theistic evolution view. It's sort of a directed evolutionary course, sort of like this is the unfolding of how life and humans came about over long periods. So I, uh, I kind of bundled a few different ideas there in that question, yeah. but I'm interested in what are the main strands that changed your mind and, and what the changing of your view looked like? Yeah, well, there we could we could separate a couple of different possible theistic evolutionist views there indeed. There could be those who would kind of say, yeah, you know, the Darwinian process in the sense of genuinely random variations and natural selection, that can account for the, the biological data in front of us. And that a world in which that process would happen was set up by God. Uh, maybe he would know what the result of that process would be. But that process is not in any sense actually guided by God in its unfolding versus those who would say, yeah, I think that the, the kind of that process is, is actually intelligently guided by God. It's not just God relying upon the inherent chance capacities of the nature that he's made, but God actually intelligently guiding the nature that he's made. And you see that th those are two different views. The difference between that second view and intelligent design, which also believes, you know, intelligent design that believes an intelligence guided at least some bits within a theistic framework. The theistic intelligent design theorist is obviously going to think that that intelligence is God intelligently guiding things within the framework. So you might think, you know what, so what's the difference between a kind of a theistic evolution God guiding versus a intelligent design theorist who believes that the designer is God who did the guiding? Well, it's because the intelligent design theorist thinks that you can, you can infer at least to as far as an intelligence by looking at the scientific data, that the, that the idea that there was guidance, intelligent guidance going on is something that, you, that is a warranted conclusion you can make from looking at the data. The, the theistic evolutionist thinks that you can't do that. They say, I believe it was guided because of my theology, not because you can look at the world and say, aha, look, there's evidence of design here. Or at the very least, that doing that is not scientific, which the ID theorist thinks it, it is. So you, you see, you start to get these fine-grained kind of differences between, okay, even if we all agree that God did it, you know, did he actually just make a process that would happen, or did he guide it? Can we infer, do we just bring that knowledge to looking at the world, or can we infer that knowledge from the world, mm. and is inferring that knowledge from the world scientific or not? And are we here doing, you know, natural theology, which is an argument for God from the evidences of nature, to, to quote William Paley, you know, <laughs> or are we actually, as the ID theorists folks would say, more in agreement with David Hume, actually, you know, the famously sceptical mm. Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, that design arguments well, they, they might at best get you as far as design, but that's not the same as getting you to the conclusion that the designer is God, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, there's a kind of, there's an additional step here that needs to be made in the argument. If you want to go from an, an argument for ID and turn that into a piece of natural theology to get from the conclusion, 
there's intelligent design in nature to the conclusion God is the designer of various things in nature. Well, you need another premise to fill in that gap. Hmm. Uh, otherwise, you, you, you know, have an unsound argument. So to make a, a, a valid argument there, you need an additional premise that the best explanation of that design that you've inferred is a theistic explanation. So th- there are actually a number of, it's not just like there's theistic evolution and there's an intelligent design. And, you know, of course, Christians can accept both. But actually, it's a number of, of sort of subtly but importantly different ways of looking at that along a kind of spectrum. I find that those explanations really helpful. That helps me see the different nuances there. In the book, the book does that really well, too. That, that's a good way of putting it, Brian, is I think the book helps you see the, the different nuances within the discussion that are mm-hmm. important to bring out. I, I know I interrupted you there, Brian, uh, but I just wanted to kind of piggyback terrible. on what you were saying. Terrible. Unacceptable. <laughs> I'm fired. I'm fired. I'm re- restarting the interview. <laughs> without me. Without me. <laughs> Well, eventually, what were the main strands for you that sort of tipped the balance? Because you're you're content to uh, accept theistic evolution in whatever variant, but then you're like, no, no, uh, the the evidence tips the scales. What were those strands? For me, when I sort of first kind of met intelligent design theory, as it continues to be a case, a lot of the, the focus of the discussion is put upon the biological aspects of intelligent design. But I would include the cosmological aspects as well. So the, the whole question of the, the explaining the fine-tuning uh, of the cosmos, which is an argument that I'd met in philosophy, in kind of natural philosophy, in, in philosophy of religion, the fine-tuning. But then ID seemed to be this whole discussion about biology, right? And within that area, the first thing that I met was the argument about the information in DNA, which is really an, an argument that goes back to at least um, Michael Plonier in the 1960s, arguing that uh, life was irreducible to simple physical laws, kind of in the way in which writing written in ink on a page is irreducible to and thus inexplicable by natural laws. And uh, I kind of first met that argument through writings of folks like American philosopher Nancy Piercy, uh, and then later Stephen Meyer as well. So it was it was about kind of the information content of life and basically explaining life at all, kind of the origin of life. How could there be this this sort of uh, information within life? Uh, and then later on, I, I read uh, Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box when that came out because this was all this was all happening for me in the in the kind of uh, mid to late 1990s uh, when I'm oh, okay. getting, getting into this, uh, right? So um, uh, you have to kind of uh, uh, project back into what literature was coming coming out of that point. So I was very much kind of following along the track with uh, the publication of, of Behe's books um, uh, and so mm-hmm. on. So that, that then uh, got me into the whole discussion of irreducible complexity which is just a kind of subset of specified complexity if something has a irreducible complexity means it's got multiple closely interacting parts that all have to work together to achieve a particular function whereby if you take away uh, one of the core parts of that uh, arrangement of bits uh, it stops achieving that function right um, be he uses uh, the the mouse trap like is the, the infamous yeah 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 analogy Example. but um, yeah 
And that's something that, um, you know, I, I debate quite a bit in um, the essay um, that's interacting with Dennis Alexander in, in the book, his critiques of Behe's arguments and so on that I, that I attempt to counter in the book. So I went from uh, the information in life and the kind of very origin of life itself and, and reading books like The Mystery of Life or Life's Origins by uh, Thaxton and, uh, and collaborators in uh, earlier editions. Um, it's out in a nice new edition fairly recently from the Discovery Institute with a load of um, other papers commenting on the kind of state of the debate about the origin of life. If any listeners are interested in the, in the origin of life issue, I would recommend the Discovery Institute's new new uh, edition of The Mystery of Life's Origin. Mm. Uh, but then uh, the arguments about irreducible complexity from, from Behe and his more recent discoveries about the, the very often devolutionary processes with, within life where uh, things under Darwinian selection pressure actually find it much easier to get survival advantages by, by jettisoning information rather than constructing uh, large amounts of new information uh, and so on. So that was kind of the trajectory that, that I took uh, and marrying that with uh, saying that the discussion that had been going on for a while within kind of natural philosophy, philosophy of religion about the fine tuning was actually came under the, the bracket of intelligent design theory. You know, and I, I would say someone who says, yeah, the, the evidence of fine tuning passes through a design inferring criterion of some kind and points to design genuine design of some kind, I think, uh, and he says, yeah, and I think that's a scientific argument. I would classify them as within the ID school, even if they thought that all of the arguments about biological design fell down because they thought the data didn't warrant, warrant them. They would obviously, they would agree that we have a design detection criteria and that inferring design is scientific, but that doesn't mean that they agree with every, you know, example. They might, for example, you might, for example, think that, yeah, there's good evidence from the origin of life but B, he's irreducible complexity thing, that doesn't work, or so on. So, you know, you don't all have to, it's not a monolith. <laughs> it's not a monolith. A any more than, as I argue in the book, actually, Darwin's, the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution is, is a kind of a monolithic thing that you have to take or leave altogether, as, as, as I point out. Mm -hmm. You know, Darwin himself didn't nail his clothes to the mast as, uh, uh, about whether life had a single origin or a multiple origin. Uh, these days, you know, the standard theory is goes back to a last universal common ancestor and back to a, a, a universal common ancestor. But there are uh, secular uh, scientists who accept common ancestry, but who reject universal common ancestry, for example. So uh, it, it's not a monolithic thing on on, on either side. And, and again, it's it's this philosophical thing of you know being precise about your definitions and. And categories, and saying that there is there's nuance between different positions, and those nuances really matter when you're trying to get at truth. Yes, and again, the book demonstrates that very well. Maybe nodding back to the title, "Informed Cosmos," one of the main sort of features of design inferences and detection is the aspect of information. And can you kind of give us just an overall sketch of what? information is and how something being specified and complex results in a legitimate inference to design. Yeah, well, I, I actually quote some definitions in, the, in some of the front pieces uh, of the book. Uh, information noun, I mean, knowledge or intelligence, facts, data, the attribute inherent in and communicated by 
one of two or more alternative sequences or arrangements of something, such as nucleotides in DNA or binary digits in a computer program that produces specific effects. So you've got various options and you've excluded a whole bunch of options to settle on one particular option. Uh, that's a kind of uh, specification uh, of, of information. You know, information is another way of talking about specified complexity. Um, complexity is where you, you, you have uh, contingency. Things can be different ways, and you have a lot of different ways that it can be. And so uh, a nice, I think it's best to kind of bring these home with, you know, folks like um, William Dembski, if, if you want to get into the kind of mathematical details and formalism and, and so on of the background of this. But as a, you know, a, a mere philosopher rather than a, a mathematician, <laughs> Dembski is a mathematician <laughs> and a philosopher, right? Right. But uh, folks like uh, Maya and myself, we're, we're, we're within the philosophy department only. Uh, <laughs> and we like these nice kind of concrete uh, examples. So to quote um, an example from William Lane Craig that I use in the book, he, he says, um, you know, imagine yourself in a, playing a game of poker. Uh, in a poker game, any particular like, specific right, deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. That is, it's complex. It's improbable. It's one out of a large number of possibilities. Uh, so any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It's one possible arrangement of, of cards out of all of the possible arrangements of cards of the size of a hand. Okay? But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet that this is the result not of chance, but of design. So it's the, the getting all four aces is specified as a pattern that will you know, lead you to win uh, mm. the game. It's, it's, it, it achieves this result that, it, that sets it apart from all the other hands that you could have you know, been randomly dealt, as it were. So you know, if uh, you know, your, your cowboy's playing poker and every time this particular cowboy, you know, with the 10-gallon hat deals the cards, he ends up getting all four aces. And you, you say, I suspect you're cheating. <laughs> and he says, well, there's nothing suspicious going on here. I mean, you know, any hand of cards that, that we get dealt, they're all equally improbable. <laughs> well, yes, but it's the combination of highly and improbable event with that event being specified being kind of uh, set apart in, in this way whether by some sort of um, f functional thing that it uh, achieves uh, Dembski has cashed it out in a few different ways over the years he, he talks about if it can if it's got a, a short description events he says events that have high probabilistic complexity that is improbable events high probabilistic complexity but whose identifying patterns have low descriptive complexity. So think of um, you know Scrabble, you know pulling letters out of a Scrabble bag, uh, sight unseen. Well, of course, occasionally those letters will form an English word, a short English word like you know the or this. Okay. Well, that hits a specification. The or this is a word in English. There's lots of arrangements of 
letters of the English alphabet that are not words in English. Most of the arrangements that you could make out, out, of, out of letters are not words in English. There's this, this small subset of those arrangements which are words in English. So if you pull out the bag, the, you've hit a specification, but you haven't done so at very long odds. It's not unlikely enough to make you suspicious. But if, like Arthur Dent in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when they're looking for the, for the great question, you're using Scrabble tiles and you pull them in sequence and they spell out what is nine times 10 or whatever, I forget what the, the specific one they, they, they drew out in Hitchhiker's is, but it, it draws out, you know, like a sentence or a paragraph of a grammatical text you would immediately suspect that someone was playing some kind of trick on you. You wouldn't think, oh, that's lucky of me. <laughs> like, you know, there's a certain point of complexity beyond which just saying, oh, that's lucky, doesn't really cut it uh, as the explanation. Uh, and in our experience, when really, really complicated events that hit specifications, uh, when we know where they came from, they came from intelligences. And so by standard inference in cases where we see uh, parallel cases of similarly specified events that are you know, similarly complex, we can infer to design as the best explanation for them by, by inference. It's not, a, it's not a knockdown argument, you know, QED, therefore, uh, mathematically, <laughs> but, it, but it's a good scientific inference to the best explanation. Mm. That's, that's the form of argumentation that's being used there. Well, I have a question. You know, you're saying that, you know, obviously we can recognize design, but at the same time, we can also recognize when things aren't designed. So I wonder if that itself is a design inference, only looking at it from the opposite way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that. So if, if you came into a room, as I say, and you saw Scrabble tiles arranged out, spelling out a poem by G.K. Chesterton on the table, you would immediately infer that that was the product of design because it it's an example of specified complexity but if you came into the room and saw scrabble tiles just strewn around a table or in sequences that didn't spell out any english words or words in any language that you knew of so on you wouldn't infer design but you wouldn't be in a position to say the arrangement of those tiles on that table is not the product of design because they could well be, you know, unbeknownst mm. to you, before you were in the room, there was me in the room taking out Scrabble letters very carefully from the bag and precisely arranging them on the table in an apparently random configuration. Or you might have some kind of code that you correlated to each letter or something like that. Right, that you don't know about. Okay? Right. And so you wouldn't notice. Uh, and so you can't look at data and infer the absence of design from it. You can only mm -hmm. look at data and infer the presence of design. If you do start with a Christian worldview and you have theological beliefs such as God is sovereign, then you could look at quote-unquote apparent chaos in the cosmos or things that you haven't yet seen the design and say, well, if God is sovereign, then there must be a purpose behind this because, I, for instance, I wouldn't believe that God does anything chaotically or randomly without a purpose to it. Well, there again, I think different, different Christians might have different theologies uh, mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. Some Christians would believe in a much more 
kind of meticulous uh, divine providence uh, mm-hmm. than others would. Some might well believe that God is happy to create things that have capacities to randomly do things, do things by chance. Yeah, he would foreknow that, or some Christians would believe that by his divine middle knowledge, he would know what certain things would do were he to create them, but that they would do that thing randomly were mm-hmm. he to create them. And he's happy to create them. So the Mm -hmm. fact that they exist and that they do that, yes, is down to God. uh, But there's also a sense in which he he didn't meticulously guide that particular process. Uh, So Mm -hmm. kind of how the event gets there uh, within a theology uh, of monotheism is, again, itself a, a kind of complex yeah. <laughs> issue, well, right? I digress. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there, there was another uh, thing you mentioned in your chapter about Paley's watchmaker illustration. Uh, I thought that was very insightful. What you said about it is that, you know, he wasn't arguing from analogy like uh, the universe is like a watch. It, but you were saying that his illustration basically shows that we can detect design from certain features. And um, yeah. I wonder, some people would say, oh, you're just appealing to intuitions. Uh, we might have those intuitions, but are they only intuitions, or have we just not thought about those things <laughs> deep enough? <laughs> well, however you categorize them, they're, they're things that people are very uh, happy to use in all sorts of sciences uh, every day, as well as in all sorts of everyday situations. So not only when you're suspecting people of cheating at playing poker, or uh, cheating at playing the lottery, or uh, cheating at the scientific results that they publish in a peer-reviewed journal and then later found out to have jerry-rigged the results, or whatever. Those can be instances of design detection. So you need design detection to keep science honest, and lots of sciences use design detection from cryptography, computer sciences, um, forensic science, forensic engineering, archaeology, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, loads of fields of sciences use uh, design detection, uh, and we rely upon uh, that that knowledge to to do things practically in life and so on. So I think we've got very good grounds for thinking that we can reliably detect design. Where this becomes controversial, as I say, is when you, you want to apply that within fields where people for philosophical reasons would like to exclude the possibility that intelligence is involved, particularly where the involvement of intelligence might seem to suggest the existence of an intelligence that's non-reducible to explanations that fit within a materialistic worldview, right? Because the the materialists are are happy to infer intelligence in forensic science or archaeology or cryptography or in SETI. So it's not as if they're saying, you know, actually, you're not allowed to infer intelligent to intelligence. If they want to say you're not allowed to infer to intelligence, then we have to rule all of those sciences non-scientific. But if you let intelligence in, then how come you're not allowed to infer to intelligence from the irreducible complexity of the blood clotting cascade, if that's a, a true instance of specified complexity, uh, etc.? Well, because people start thinking, oh, you know, maybe you're, you're talking about God. Well, well, maybe we're talking about intelligent aliens who have an entirely naturalistic, naturalistic explanation. Oh, but you know, where would they come from? Wouldn't they rely upon? Well, you know, are you happy with an infinite regress or not? Do you turn that into an argument for the existence of an explanation in terms of an intelligence that does not contain specified complexity, that therefore that does not uh, exist contingently 
as things with specified complexity do. Well, now you're starting to, to sound like you're mounting some kind of cosmological argument from contingency to the existence of a necessary creator of the universe, right? And oh dear, that's sounding a bit too much like God for comfort with a metaphysically naturalistic worldview. Well, okay, but is your metaphysically naturalistic worldview open to counter-argument that goes from, you know, starts with roots in the standard kind of methodology that you're happy to apply elsewhere in the world? Mm. Uh, or or do, do you, as I say, preclude, make up your mind about, you know, what the conclusions are, are going to have to be in advance of looking at the data? Very good. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, as you're reading the literature and, and publishing on it yourself and interacting with so many different people on these topics, is there one or two kind of prevailing errors or mistakes that you see people making when they're addressing or thinking about intelligent design? Well, there's, there's a whole bunch, I think, but I think it's important, as we've said, to highlight the secondary nature of this discussion about, you know, is it science or not? And focus on the mm. question of, is it, is it true? And that boils down to these two questions of, is there a reliable methodology of inferring to intelligence? And is there data that passes through it? And actually, the first premise is not controversial in all sorts of scientific fields. And that methodology of using uh, specified complexity as a way of inferring design is accepted implicitly and or explicitly by plenty of folks who are in the kind of uh, atheist Darwinian camp or in the theistic evolution camp and would disagree with ID. So I think really the crucial question boils down to what is the scientific evidence, the, the, the relevant scientific data, uh, have we understood it correctly? Uh, mm. and, and then I, I guess if I had to highlight one other thing, it would be this important of definitions again, of kind of straw manning definitions. So you often find um, theistic evolutionists critiquing Behe's work idea of irreducible complexity by straw manning his definition. Just giving a definition of irreducible complexity, which is not the definition that Behe gave, and saying, for example, something to, for something to be irreducibly complex means that it has lots of parts that do something, and if you uh, remove one of those parts, it doesn't do anything, or that part doesn't have any other function somewhere else, uh, and then say, well, there's a part or there's a subset of parts within some system that can achieve another function. So people have looked at the bacterial flagellum and they've said that there's actually a, a sort of a, a protein pump that's a subset of the parts within the flagellum and that there are bacteria that use protein pumps to inject uh, things. And therefore, the bacterial flagellum is not irreducibly complex. But that's not using the definition that, that Behe gave for a start. It's a bit like saying, because there's a fuel pump in your car engine, that shows that the, the car engine is not irreducibly complex and therefore not designed. Um, mm. Well, the pump itself is irreducibly complex for a start. So that, yeah. that needs explanation. How it closely integrates to function with all of the other parts to achieve the function of, of being a, a motor still needs explaining and there's loads of other parts where you're going to get them for and how does that coordination happen 
And in the case of the bacterial flagellum, the, the, the best kind of genetic data seems to show that the protein pump came into existence as a standalone feature later than the bacterial flagellums did. So if anything evolved from anything, it was the pump kind of coming out of the flagellum rather than vice versa. So maybe uh, you know, the pump is is a, a devolved product of the of the of the, <laughs> the whole system. But the, uh, the you know you need the, looking to the data about you know what is the the, the temporal ordering uh, of these these things, and it, it doesn't work out in favour of that explanation. So just kind of um, kind of straw manning the argument by by not cl- paying close attention to the arguments and sort of be he said you know I, I never said that the the parts of an irreducibly complex thing couldn't themselves have other functions within the cell. Indeed, in, 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 in um, Darwin's black box, he explicitly said that that, that could be the case. <laughs> yeah. He'd already dealt with that argument in the original book that he published it, uh, and yet that is still being used as an argument against the, the prime trot-out, knockdown argument against his idea. Uh, is one that he himself had already mentioned and discussed in his book. <laughs> I hear you saying, you know, that ultimately what matters is whether or not ID is true and to avoid the straw manning. I was curious as to, do you also see trying to equate, because I know this was going on for a while, and but a lot of people I've heard, try they'll say something along the lines of, oh, intelligent design is just a creationism Trojan horse. <laughs> I've even heard someone like Michael Shermer call it intelligent design creationism. Yeah. Uh, oh, do, yeah. do, you, do you still see that happening a lot too, trying to equate the two? And then, of course, how would you best address that? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a way of um, committing the fallacy of poisoning the well or, or damning by association. Precisely, yeah. Um, yeah. Rather than taking it in its own terms, you know, I think it's a disreputable way of, of treating an academic idea uh, to do that to it. But I mean, I think I'm, I'm a good example of, you know, I came from a theistic evolutionist background. I became persuaded of intelligent design theory, but my theology didn't change. Mm. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I didn't become a young Earth creationist uh, <laughs> off the back of it, even. So I am not, nor have I ever been a member of the Young Earth Creationists uh, fraternity. Uh, I simply moved from theistic evolution to thinking that, yeah, intelligent design theory was true and that that was also compatible with a theistic worldview and with my Christianity. Excellent. And then just kind of beginning to wrap up before we let you, of course, share where our listeners can find you and your great work. I was wondering how has the study of ID impacted your own relationship with God? As I say, it didn't really shift my theology. I think in the years since I've started thinking more about the the interpretation of the the second creation narrative in Genesis about Adam and Eve and so on. Mm. And there's there's very interesting debates, series of publications at the moment going on about the discussion about science and genetics and, and Adam and Eve and so on and how sure. you interpret them if you think, if you consider them to be real people rather than than merely as, as metaphors or kind of archetypes. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a theistic evolutionist, I very much had a kind of metaphorical, archetypal, purely metaphorical kind of reading of them. And I've kind of sh- shifted that over the years. But I don't think that's particularly connected to my thinking about intelligent design. 
uh, although it's been kind of in the wake of that. But again, I, I'm I'm still not minded to take a, a young Earth creationist interpretation mm. of of either of the creation narratives in Genesis. I tend to the view that sees them as sequential rather than as talking about the same events uh, and so on. But it's still it's still one of the areas that I'm kind of thinking through, and it's still you know clearly one of the areas that Christian community at an academic level are, are thinking through and thinking through some kind of new proposals. And I love it when, you know, an area that people have been thinking about in theology for thousands of years, uh, people can come up with new ideas in that area, partly because of, of new science. And so uh, folks like um, Joshua Swadamas and his book on genealogical Adam and Eve Mm. And work and work that has been done by some in the ID community on the genetics of you know is it actually consistent with population genetics to have an original couple and all uh, humans descended from them? There used to be arguments that that wasn't consistent with population genetics, and as far as I understand it now, even folks at sort of theistic evolutionist groups like Biologos uh, would concede that it actually now is consistent although not necessarily the most plausible model of population mm. genetics to say that there was an original couple for myself whether or not one views adam and eve as the original and only humans from whom all other humans descend is still an open question i'm i'm, I'm minded to see them as as actual people but not necessarily as as first people this whole question of whether other people outside of the garden you know questions about you know where did cain Get his wife. Why are there are enough people around suddenly for Cain to be building a city? Who is who mm-hmm. is he afraid of when God exiles him after killing his brother? You know, you know, anyone who finds me will kill me. You know, who is he worried about if he's being uh, exiled away into the land of Nod uh, mm. and so on? So I think those are you know very interesting questions. And science brings and can, can bring, continue to bring new things to that discussion. So you know get into the discussion that's being had by folks like uh, Joshua Swadimas, William Lane Craig recently wrote a book uh, on Adam and Eve, uh, John Garvey, uh, etc. There's uh, a number of interesting works in that whole discussion at, at the moment, and it's one that you know science brings something to the discussion, but so does. Our theology, our interpretation of scripture, which is, you know, again, affected by our theology, our understanding of ancient cultures, our understanding of ancient languages, our philosophy. You get into these really interdisciplinary areas of thinking when you're trying to form what's called a synoptic Christian worldview. Synoptic as in like the synoptic gospels that kind of Mm. seeing Christian, seeing Christ from from these different perspectives of these different authors, but, but, but all talking about the same thing. Um, we're trying, in the end, to come up with a, a synoptic worldview that makes the, the best sense we think we can make out of all the sources of, of, of knowledge, of, of, of warranted beliefs that we think we have. And that is a fallible human discipline, right? Whatever mm. you believe about right. biblical, biblical inspiration and authority, our reading <laughs> and interpretation of Scripture is, is a fallible human practice. You know, that's obvious from the fact that Christians disagree about things, and we particularly have lots of disagreements about the very beginning of the Bible and the very end of the Bible. And why is that? (laughs) It's because those two bits of literature in Genesis and in Revelation are really difficult to interpret and understand. Indeed. Uh, They're kind of very remote from our Western 21st century culture and the process of, of understanding God's world 
in the best way, goes on being informed by our understanding and our evolving understanding of Scripture. And part of the reason that that evolves over time is because we have our interpretations are affected by our knowledge of other things. Mm. Uh, and that that knowledge grows uh, over time, and so you would you would expect that you expect to have kind of a, a core a unity in in the sources uh, and in kind of the creedal kind of structures. And I often I often tell people that Christians uh, agree on on the doctrine of creation, but we have very different models or pictures of creation. And you can you can you can say the creed together, but disagree about your model of creation. Mm. And actually, you don't have to believe or assume a particular model of creation in order to believe or even just assume the truth of the doctrine of creation. Uh, and so, again, you know, what issues are primary and what issues are secondary? God created. We're here for a purpose. There is a meaning and purpose of life. That's a, a big worldview difference to to naturalism or to pantheism or whatever. And that worldview sets a context within which the Christian story of Christ makes sense. But as to the the particular ins and outs of your interpretation of the kind of the, the model or picture of creation that you have in mind, that is a, a secondary or, or kind of tertiary issue here. And I think we should bear that in mind as well. Yeah, it's incredibly important uh, to make sure that we're majoring on the primary issues and allowing freedom in those secondary issues. I concur. Um, I just wanted to say before Brian wraps things up, I just wanted to just personally thank you for your work and just let you know how much I enjoy it and how encouraging it's been to my own walk. Brian, thank you. That's that's encouraging to me as well. So thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. We'll point people to your resources and your website in the show notes. Anything new on the horizon that uh, we should be calling you back about? (laughs) Well, one project that I'm very excited about at the moment is uh, I'm an amateur composer as well. You'll notice that there's a composing Mm -hmm. tab on my website. And uh, I used to work with a a now rather old-fashioned composing software that would once you'd uh, programmed in the notes, would would make a a computer recording of your music for you using sampled Mm. instruments. But I I realized the other day that my computer software was like 13 years out of date. And with all of this discussion about, you know, artificial intelligence and so on, I would lay money that computers these days are not limited to the choir just going, ah, so you know, I had scores with, with I had scores with words written under the choir parts, but the computer could only reproduce them with a choir that went ah 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 ah. But computer, <laughs> computing technology has come on and off these days that an, an artificial choir can do a pretty darn good job of actually singing the lyrics. Hmm. And so I've, I've reached out over the internet. I'm working with a, a, a collaborator that I found through the internet to use my original uh, Somalia 6 composition files to convert them into modern computing music software and to produce new recordings of my uh, kind of Christian and uh, modern classical music with the choir actually singing the lyrics <laughs> that, oh, wow. that I have there. And so it, it makes the music much more accessible to the normal audience who might not want to sit there with a, with a score printed out, reading the words and kind of imagining <laughs> what it should sound like. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they'll, be able to, 
able to hear a pretty good approximation using modern samples and so on of what I imagined in my head when I was composing it. So that project is is currently underway and I hope to have it uh, out later this this summer of the the new recording of um, this, particularly this suite of music that tells the the story of the biblical worldview that's called From Glory to Glory that goes from, well, from just pre God pre-creation through creation through the story of, of Christ and to thinking about Christian living now in a world of suffering in the light of the hope of glory. So uh, very cool. Exciting. Great. Thanks again, Peter, and all the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetics stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.